It's just over two weeks until America decides who its next president is going to be. In competing town hall sessions this week, the president appeared to confirm that he is indeed in millions of dollars of debt, while millions of Americans take advantage of early voting, with many states seeing record numbers turning out. On today's show, we speak to the owner of the largest gun store in America. Our panel digests the week's news from the campaign trail. Plus, will the key battleground state of Pennsylvania swing towards Biden? The Donald versus Uncle Joe. The reality TV star versus the DC veteran. Red versus blue. You're listening to News Talk, and this is Race to the White House. He was only a good vice president because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. I'm ready to give him a new nickname, the former President Trump. We've done more in this administration than any president in the history of our country. We're in a battle for the soul of the nation. Hello everyone, I'm Simon Tierney. Thank you for joining us on Race to the White House, Newstalk's weekly show dedicated to the US presidential election. Do get in contact with us via Twitter. You can find us at Newstalk FM or indeed at Tierney Simon. Now, normally at this point in a US election cycle, the polls begin to close. This is not happening. If anything, the gap is widening as Biden consolidates his national lead. And yes, I hear what you're saying. You can't trust the polls. The ghosts of 2016 still linger. However, I cannot help but wonder if the American people have simply had enough. The New York Times editorial board this this morning stated that the re-election campaign of Donald Trump poses the greatest threat to American democracy since World War II. Now, I spent some time over the last few days reflecting on just what an extraordinary four years it has been in American political life. It has been a period characterised by chaos. Has the state's not consistently shown itself to be out of control since 2017? The separation of families at the southern border, the ban on Muslim-majority countries, white supremacist marches, police brutality, only the third impeachment of a president in the nation's 244-year history, the propagation of baseless conspiracy theories like QAnon, advisors of the president ending up in prison, countless allegations of sexual assault, a tell-all memoir by a porn star, um, a White House staff turnover rate of 91%, the consistent firing or resignation of national security advisors, press secretaries, secretaries of state, and countless others, and the deaths of over 200,000 American lives to COVID. Every single norm and convention has been flipped on its head. So my question is, is the widening gap between Biden and Trump simply representative of Americans' desire to wake up from a rather disturbing dream, to turn down the volume and to return to some sense of normalcy? Now, I'm joined, as always by Dr. Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD and Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Greg, are Americans simply fed up? Is that why the gap isn't closing? Well, I'm not sure the gap is not closing. I mean, if you really look at the numbers, they're very similar to what they were in 2016. And in fact, in the, in the swing states, um, Biden is actually underperforming Hillary at, at this time in 2016. So you know, I'm not sure of that, but, but I do admit, surely there's, there's Trump fatigue. Um, you know, there's no doubt that a lot of the supporters of, of Biden are not voting for Biden because they like him or the sort of progressive left um, policies that the party has embraced. 
but they're voting for him because they don't like Trump. But that's that's probably not new. Remember, Trump won in 2016 when he was polling at, at or just above 40, and now he's in the mid 40s. So, I, you know, I, I don't think it's not that I don't trust the polls. It's just that there's some statistics here, especially around Republican registrations, that are suggesting that, you know, the whole country doesn't hate Trump. It's just the the progressive left surely dislikes the president. There's no doubt about that. And I think there is some Trump fatigue, and you might see that from from some of the undecideds or, or what few persuadables there are left. Um, and, okay. and I don't think that helps the president. Um, you don't you don't again, you don't have the I think I mentioned this last week in 2016, there was a pretty significant group of of voters who disliked both candidates and they went for Trump um, pretty comfortably, whereas now you don't really have, you know, that that uh, that voter class that dislikes both. They either dislike Trump or, they, sure. or they'll tolerate Biden. Okay, Graham, do you think that's a fair characterization of where the polls are or where the public mood is at? I think it is. I mean, I agree a lot with Greg about this. I'm having been on, on the television when uh, it started to look like things were going to go south for Hillary Clinton and having said that she was going to win. I'm, I'm not calling it for anybody until I see the Electoral College vote. But um, no, I, the, the race is not as it could be a lot tighter than the, the average of polls suggest. Um, another factor to consider is likely voters. So often these polls capture all voters, but likely voters are going to be a lot tighter. Uh, and then, you know, there are all sorts of imponderables in different states. Uh, and, you know, while the Biden is up in a number of states, it's often within the margin of error, even in, in swing states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. Graham, there there has been a stark absence of policy discussion so far. I mean, the first debate was, uh, it was hard to make a head nor tail of it. But did the town halls on Thursday night, did they rectify that in any way? I don't know. I mean, it was a lot more deliberative than the other debate. Uh, Biden's was full of policy, but maybe it's a function of the kind of questions which uh, Donald Trump gets is that he didn't uh, get asked a lot about policy. and He didn't tell us a lot about policy. That said, the Republicans don't really even have a proper platform this time around, uh, perhaps because of the chaos surrounding COVID. And so it really hasn't been a policy-driven election, as you say. Yeah, it just seems to be so much about identity politics rather than anything really substantive. I think identity politics is a little, it can be a little bit um, under-describing what's going on. I mean, there will have to be some kind of policy response as well as a rhetorical and perhaps cultural response to issues like Black Lives Matter and police violence uh, against African-Americans. So it's, you know, that's going to involve policies, whether they're defunding the police or whether they're different kinds of safeguards, changing of, of the various standards by which uh, police are evaluated or in terms of how you prosecute um, police killings of, of people. Um, you know, there will have to be a policy response. It can't simply be people venting their, their sense of injustice on, on one side or people proclaiming their sort of ethnic identity as white people on, on some parts of the other side. So, you know, you're going to have to have a policy response, but that tends to get drowned out in a lot of the noise surrounding the really violent clashes we've seen, um, you know, over the summer and, and on into the fall uh, this year. In terms of voting, then, according to CNN, 17 million people have already voted as of yesterday, Greg. Um, why is there so much early voting and what does it signify to you? Well, it, it, probably a few things. One is I think voter participation will be 
at possibly a record. I mean, I, I think it's it's surely going to be greater than 2016. I'm not sure what, who that helps, but there is there and 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 also there there is this early voting, um, and you'll see how that that also splits down party lines. You know, most Republicans will be voting on election day, and most Democrats are voting by mail if they can. And so, and I think you know that sort of fits within you know the this, the political divide on on COVID as well. You know, Democrats definitely poll much higher in terms of their, you know, uh, making COVID the number one concern and, and, and Republicans um, do not. So so it's pretty consistent. So I think you'll see a, a lot of early voting. You're see, you've seen significant number of, uh, of votes mailed in already or voting at, at the polls if they're open early. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean I mean, in some of the states um, that the Republican mail-ins, surprisingly, are actually um, are actually coming in ahead of the Democrats, you know, because they they're mailed in by by ballot by by party selection. So um, that was a surprise to me. I thought I thought the, the okay. Democratic vote would be much greater. So, uh, but but surely mail-in voting is going to be up significantly uh, as well as early voting. Now, in terms of this early voting, there has been a much more diverse range of options for voters this year in terms of how they cast their ballots. So there's drop box voting, there's even drive-through voting. And the Republicans are doing, or it seems like they're doing everything, everything they can to restrict access to voting. Like, for example... They have a court case at the moment to restrict this drive-through voting option. Why are the Republicans trying to dampen the enthusiasm to vote, Greg? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, people on the left will, and the media will argue that that's voter suppression, which is definitely not true. What, what the Republicans are nervous about, and it's interesting because this could actually backfire on the Democrats, but the, the Republicans are, are nervous about the potential for fraud. Obviously, there's a lot more probability of fraud in mail-in uh, rather than than in-person voting or even absentee voting, which is different than than mass mail-in mail-in voting. Because with absentee voting, you have to request the ballot. They check your signature. They check your address. They do all that stuff. Um, the the rejection rate, contrary to the Dimple Chad uh, situation in 2000, you know the the rejection rate on in-person voting is statistically insignificant. It's well below one percent, a fraction, a small fraction of that. Whereas in mail-in voting, the rejection rate historically has been 1%. But that's in states like Washington and Oregon that have been doing mail-in voting for a very long time, and they have the, they have the systems in place. They're used to it, right? So 1% rejection rate, that's, that's not good, but it's not horrible. But, um, but it's a lot worse than in-person voting. But the rejection rate in the mass mail-in votes that we saw in New York and New Jersey – those rejection rates last summer in Democratic primaries were 20 and 28 percent, respectively. That's really high. I mean, that's a yeah. disaster, actually. Okay, but well, even if it's just two or three percent, and that's going to hurt Democrats more than hurts Republicans, because most Republicans are going to vote in person and, and most Democrats okay. are going to vote by mail-in. So they're going to have a lot of rejected ballots, which is not going to be good on, on November 4th. Well, Graham, let's stick with this for a moment, because the Republicans and in especially Trump, are pushing the notion of voter fraud. Um, he said last night in his town hall, when I see thousands of ballots dumped in a garbage can and they happen to have my name on it, I'm not happy about it. Is the fear of voter fraud a real thing or is this a desperate last shoot of the arrow from the Trump campaign? 
I think it's more the latter. I mean, almost all the cases of voter fraud I can think of, um, there was a guy who may or may not have been irregular in the United States who may have voted you know, somewhere. Um, but they had all, the Trump came up with a whole commission to try and look into voter fraud. They didn't find any. All the scandals we can we can think of involving voter fraud. There was a woman who voted twice um, in Iowa because Trump told her to. Trump was actually urging the voters of North Carolina to vote twice, which is a felony. But uh, but oh, anyway, and, and there there was a, a Republican uh, candidate in North Carolina in the last congressional election who had a guy going around collecting votes from people all over the place and filling them out himself, and they had to rerun the election. Right now in California, the the Republican Party is putting out quote-unquote official ballot drop boxes, which are anything but. This also is probably illegal, and FARC is almost certainly illegal, but they're going to stick with it. They're just going to take the word official off it. I mean, if anything, voter fraud is coming from the Republican Party, um, and they've had ample attempts to try and find it on the Democratic side, and they have not. Now, this election is crazy. I mean, Greg's right. There's going to be a lot of, of mail-in ballots in states which are not used to it. In a number of those cases, the ballots for the presidential election will be, you know, they didn't mail out ballots to everybody. They mailed out, you know, forms by which people could request a ballot, right, which is a very different thing. So we're going to see a lot of contests around this. We're going to see a lot of challenges to both mail-in and potentially and possibly by irregular groups, groups who are not official poll watchers, challenging people's in-person voting. It's going, there's going to be a lot of contests. There's already been hundreds of lawsuits surrounding this in a number of states. Um, the whole thing is going to get very, very messy. Okay. And, and the count could go on for days. Uh, Greg, this all sounds like, I mean, we're going to end up in the courts here after November the 3rd. It's going to be a mess, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I, mean, you know, I think the Biden campaign, I, I heard, had hired 600 lawyers. And I don't doubt the Trump campaign would do something similar. And, and I think, you know, the if I were the Democrats, I would encourage people to vote in person because that just means less likelihood that their own their own voters will have will have be rejected um, you know so it does it opens it up to, to fraud I, I i wouldn't say that the democrats are are immune to that I, I i totally agree that it's not just the democrats that that have had you know voter fraud problems in the past but i think it's more of the the possibility of, of fraud, but also just forget about fraud. Just but the wait now, wait, rates, wait now, Greg. You know, there, there doesn't yes. appear to be any real evidence of voter fraud. Uh, you know, so I, th- I, I, no, I, I don't have it in front of me, but there's, I mean, look at Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal, happens to be an African American. He's written extensively on this. There are massive, there are a great number of cases of voter fraud in the past 20 years. Um, it, and the more the more you do mail-ins, the more probability there is of that. That's just the fact. And, and Look, I, I don't. I, I agree with Graham that things could get messy. I don't think we'll have a verdict unless, for some reason, one candidate or the other has an overwhelming victory on election day. Um, I, I think a lot of, especially in the swing states, I, I believe it's Pennsylvania and Michigan have have the ability to continue counting ballots for three or three to seven days after. And then the other crazy thing is they're not going to. One of the states is not going to. One of the swing states, and I forget if it's Pennsylvania or not doesn't actually begin opening the mail-in ballots until election day. So okay. that's, but, that's, you know, just, that's just, I mean, forget about fraud for a minute. You just have a massive um, problem and you're going to, I, I guarantee you, you're going to have a rejection rate that's, that's higher than people would think is acceptable because we just saw it in New York and Patterson, New Jersey in July. 
and where we didn't have a verdict on that election for 30 days. Okay, so then it's fair enough what Trump's narrative has been about sowing distrust in the process, undermining the potential result. Is, is that what I, you're I, saying? I, I think, I think. look, I mean, the president's concerned about it. I mean, you know, back in, two, remember, back in 2016, they were saying the same thing about the president, that he was, he was, you know, suppressing votes. He wasn't going to accept the outcome of the election. And then he ended up winning. And then starting on the day after the election, the, the Democrats rejected the results of the election for four years, basically. So, look, I think the president... You know, he, he, I know he's unfiltered and I know he drums okay. up a lot of this, but I, I don't blame him for being concerned about it because we saw this movie four years ago. Graham, is that fair? I mean, this narrative of distrust in the polls, he's sown massive doubt in the process. Surely people aren't going to believe it at this stage. I think people will believe it. I mean, there's, you know, there are well-worn processes. There's state laws in place, which is going to prevent some of the more conspiracy theory versions where, you know, the um, assemblies of or the, the state legislatures of swing states like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan just disregard the, the votes and, and elect their own set of, choose their own set of electors. Um, you know, there's state law surrounding this, which can be challenged, can be used to challenge any of this stuff in courts. There are Democratic governors in those states who can veto it. So a lot of the doomsday scenarios seem unlikely. But, I mean, it, the states will have to put huge numbers of people on this task to count all these absentee ballots to make sure that they can process all the challenges um, in time for us to get a result in any kind of decent length of time. And as, as Greg says, you know, some places don't even start counting until Election Day, which, which doesn't seem great. But any chance time to uh, attempt to change the, the structures to deal with COVID, to change the laws, of course, attract the suspicions of the other side. It's just a very litigious, polarized moment in America and I think having a president who just basically doesn't even subscribe or have any confidence or in, in the actual um, electoral systems of the United States is, is deeply problematic. OK, I wish we had more time. Let's see what happens. Dr. Graham Finlay from the School of Politics in UCD and Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Thanks, Thank guys. you both. So can I ask you to do me a favour? Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? That was Donald Trump campaigning in Johnstown, Pennsylvania earlier in the week, a key battleground state in this election. Joining me now is Anne Guerin, White House correspondent for The Washington Post. And one of the defining characteristics of the 2016 election was that more white women voted for Trump than they did for Hillary. It seems like he's starting to panic that he's losing women now. Does polling in Pennsylvania reflect that? Yeah, well, Simon, uh, polling in Pennsylvania uh, reflects a number of trends that uh, do not bode well uh, for for President Trump. He had been gaining ground there. Uh, It uh, really across a number of of key constituencies, including women and including uh, senior citizens. Uh, and including uh, Republicans who had soured on him. Um, he had been gaining ground over the summer. He cut Joe Biden's lead at roughly in half uh, before September. And since then, he's stalled out, uh, and Biden remains solidly ahead uh, by about seven points. Uh, and the people that the, the president needs to, to win back uh, certainly include suburban women, many of whom have have left him across the country um, and certainly in 
important places in, in Pennsylvania, in the middle of the state and in the Northeast. Uh, and so he's he's trying very hard, President Trump, to to make a, an economic argument uh, to those voters uh, and and to try not to talk about the coronavirus pandemic uh, because he gets better marks generally for his handling okay. of the economy uh, than Biden, and he gets far, far worse marks than Biden uh, for his handling of the virus. Okay. Now, Trump won the state four years ago by a margin of less than 1%. And the latest polling in Pennsylvania from Monday of this week by Reuters Ipsos showed Biden with a seven point lead. So that would be a current swing of eight points. Um, Do you think that's going to hold or is it going to close? Well, I think it probably will close. That's been the history uh, of of these things in general. Um, But that seven uh, a roughly seven point margin uh, ha- has been pretty steady for, for several weeks. Uh, it, it would have to close a whole lot, but it really have to swing hard, um, the, which is not typically what happens in the last uh, two weeks of, of a campaign, unless there's some major external uh, factor or, or event. Uh, I don't discount the, the possibility that we could have such a thing um, but right now, the trajectory in Pennsylvania uh, is, is for uh, Biden to win. And, and certainly the, the Trump campaign uh, knows that uh, and is working hard to change it. Uh, but it is a, it, it, it's been a trajectory that uh, while the, the, number, the margin has closed, that same trajectory has, has held for quite a while. Anne Guerin is the White House correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you so much, Anne. Race to the White House on News Talk. Right, let's go back in time. It's time for our weekly segment from the archives. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. One of the things that future historians will see as significant to the context of this year's election is the racial tension across many American cities, fueled by police violence and marked by widespread protest, rioting and the ascendancy of Black Lives Matter as a powerful movement for change. The 1964 election was another election marked by racial tension. The incumbent president, Lyndon B. Johnson, had assumed office after the assassination of JFK and was now seeking the mantle on his own terms. His landmark legislative bill, the Civil Rights Act, had recently been passed by Congress but was still causing enormous upset among Southern Democrats, the so-called Dixiecrats, who bitterly opposed desegregation and equality for African Americans. This led to the emergence of a major challenger to LBJ for the Democratic nomination, Senator George Wallace, the openly racist governor of Alabama. It may seem bizarre to our modern understanding of American politics, but Wallace was indeed a Democrat and was representative of an aggressive bloc of the party who were determined to keep the South in some sort of gone-with-the-wind, white supremacist utopia. Take this speech from the campaign trail. Here Wallace rails against the effect that the Civil Rights Act was having on daily life in America. That, God forbid, black people and white people would have to share the same public spaces. Then both national parties joined together in the American Congress to pass the infamous so-called Civil Rights Bill that has destroyed the liberty and freedom of the people of this state and has taken over all of the local and state government in this state. 
And I tell you, this bill takes over every swimming pool, every park, every playground, every school in Arkansas is taken over under this bill. Every labor union, every business, every barber shop, every home and every farm and every bank is under the control of the so-called civil rights bill. Eventually, Johnson won the nomination and took on Barry Goldwater, the Republican firebrand in the election. Goldwater was also against the Civil Rights Act, having voted against it earlier in the year. Goldwater was seen as too right-wing for even some Republicans, especially after he received the support of some leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. He campaigned on a platform of refusing to reconcile with the more moderate side of the party. Indeed, he lost support when he appeared to endorse the adoption of extremism in his nomination acceptance speech. The following line was deemed so divisive that his advisers warned him not to say it, but Goldwater, in typical fashion, bulldozed through and said it anyway. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. As trouble began to ferment in Southeast Asia during the election campaign, LBJ was keen to reassure voters that he wouldn't be sending their sons off to war. In a now infamous speech in Ohio, he declared, We are not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. Within six months of winning the election, he rescinded his promise and sent the first US Marines to Vietnam landing at Da Nang in March 1965, heralding a catastrophic war that would ultimately claim 58,000 American lives. But voters didn't know that yet. And in the end, the election was a landslide for LBJ and the Democrats. Mr. Johnson swamped the Goldwater forces. He won 486 electoral votes to Goldwater's 52. And his 16 million plurality was the greatest ever. 1964 took its place in history. Now, the issue of gun control came up briefly in the Senate confirmation hearings during the week for Amy Coney Barrett. She was asked if she owns a gun. She said she does, like many Americans. But some fear that her confirmation will push the Supreme Court to a conservative majority and consequently suppress gun control measures. Joe Biden has made it explicitly clear that he intends to ban the manufacture and sale of AR-15s. On the other hand, Donald Trump openly courts the NRA, an organisation whose former president, Charlton Heston, once said, I'll give you my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. A pretty stark choice then. So the candidates' vastly different approaches to the Second Amendment will be deep inside the minds of voters on November the 3rd. Joining me now is Larry Hyatt, the owner of Hyatt Gun Store in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, Larry, what does the choice between Trump and Biden mean for the Second Amendment? And I suppose by extension then for your business as a gun store owner? Well, yes, it's, it's uh, worrisome to uh, myself as an owner and to the career staff because they want to know if they have jobs in five years. There's a pretty clear choice. Uh, oddly enough, these last month or so, it's really been played down because I think the uh, uh, anti-gun party just doesn't want to lose any votes. So they've really played it down a little bit on their ads. Uh, but uh, the Republicans have played it up, and of course the pro-gun organizations have 
have tried to let the public know. There is that sort of paradoxical situation which you mentioned briefly there, Larry, that because there's a possibility, a strong possibility, that there will be a Democratic president, it sort of increases gun sales. And my understanding is that during Obama's uh, premiership, that there was um, a rise in gun sales. But when there's a Republican president, there's a slump. Is that true? That is, that is very true. And it is the perceived laws that might be passed that would keep someone from buying one. So it sort of causes people to go ahead and make a purchase instead of wait. They're afraid if they wait, they won't be able to. Okay, I'm fascinated to get an understanding of what sort of people your customers are. Um, Apart from your sporting goods clients, the people who are coming in for firearms as a source of protection, what sort of people are you seeing coming to you for help? One thing for sure, starting in late March, is a whole different group. The vast majority of the buyers for the last seven months have been African-Americans, women, and senior citizens, uh, and urban people. These are uh, groups that did not own guns. The suburban and rural buyers already had guns. What we've seen is a whole host of new buyers uh, has a little fear that uh, we have a breakdown of the institutions in the United States when they see these riots and looting and burning and on top of the uh, coronavirus and the political upheaval has just put a fear in the American people that we've never seen before in my lifetime. Okay, so when someone comes into your store in Charlotte and they're a first-time buyer, you are required to do some sort of quite quick uh, background check. Can you explain how that works to me? Absolutely. It is very complicated. And one of the biggest surprises to uh, these new gun buyers is they were unable to buy a gun quickly. Um, Handguns were taking up to three months to get a permit. And long guns were taking, instead of being able to buy them that day, they were having to wait four or five days longer because the background check system got overloaded. Okay, so if I go into your shop today, is it impossible for me to buy a gun on the day? It's, it's iffy. There's about a 50% chance you could buy a rifle or shotgun. No chance you could buy a handgun. Um, I'm curious to understand because often in European countries, the citizenry will rely on the police for protection. Is there not a trust that the police are enough to protect citizens in the United States, that they need to arm themselves. I think you really hit on something there because I think one of the biggest driving forces for all these new gun buyers has been they in the past were dependent on the police. But when they saw the riots and this movement of defunding and the attacks on the police, lost confidence. When someone comes in and buys a gun, do they do they ever ask you, Larry, well... You're going to have to show me how to use this. I mean, presumably first-time buyers, they don't know how to use a gun. So what do they do? We have to spend a lot of time with them. And it's a big responsibility, buyer. You have to know how to use it properly. You have to be able to store it so children and unauthorized people can't get to it. Uh, You have a considerable financial expense. And you're probably going to have some more expense taking classes. Okay. Now, Biden says that he's going to ban the manufacture and sale of what he describes as assault weapons, which would include a firearm like the AR-15. 
Is that uh yeah. is that a firearm that you sell? The AR-15 type rifle is the by far the biggest seller in the United States. Uh, it's one of the most popular guns uh, that we sell. Okay, and why would someone typically come to your shop to buy that uh, that weapon? Why would they need that sort of weapon? Recently, the need has the perceived need has been best thing they can give for the most protection for their family or their business. Number two, it has very low recoil, so even women can operate it. Ammunition was inexpensive, easy to operate. A lot of accessories are out there for it. So it's, the popularity is just it's fun to shoot, too. So it's been a, a, a big success. So there's a lot, of, lot going on with the AR. A lot of people like it. I suppose one of the reasons why it's so infamous, uh, Larry, is because the AR is the gun that is used in a lot of mass shootings. Um, is that a concern to people, to your customers? I think it's a concern to everyone that we've had these mass shootings and these copycats, and it's been uh, the biggest fear of gun owners that something like this happening uh enables these gun laws to be passed and the high emotions and uh, the, the misery of seeing uh, school people killed and kids. And it's just uh, heart-wrenching. And uh, that's when these laws can be passed under these highly emotional states. I mean, if, if Biden becomes president, he has vowed, as I said, to ban the manufacture and sale of this weapon. Are you concerned about that if he becomes president or would you be happy to, to let that one go? Well, you know, I see literally 20, 30 million of these guns are out there. And 99.9999% are not misused. And a lot of this goes back to some mental issues and some uh, problems that we have in our country on how we deal with some mental problems. It has to do with our uh, criminal justice system. There's so many factors. In fact, we did ban them for 10 years. We had a, a ban on AR-15 type guns, and it had no effect on crime uh, that they could discover when they did the study. So it's a, there's a lot going on. A lot of people have looked at it, studied it. Uh, it's controversial, but they're mean looking, they're ugly, but they're popular, and they are rarely misused. In fact, of all firearms, the rifle is the least used in crime of any kind. Do you offer firearms for children, for teenagers, anything like that? Well, generally speaking, uh, the body size has a lot to do with it. So usually a teenager when is old enough and big enough, they can learn gun safety. And in fact, you know, our, our hunting laws uh, require that they, people take a gun safety course, hunter safety course. So gun safety is a huge issue. In the United States, we have reduced young children accidental with, with the guns. Unfortunately, teenagers, we have not because of the drug and gun culture in the cities. So what what sort of ages would be the kids that parents bring in to try and find a firearm that would fit them? Generally speaking, if they want their child to learn about firearms, they will usually start with a 22 rifle, 22 caliber, has no recoil, has inexpensive ammunition, and they can take them out and teach them gun accuracy and gun safety that is usually the first firearm. What sort of age? Uh, it will vary, but I would say 12 to 14 are usually when the first time that they're introduced. Okay. There in North Carolina, um, I'm interested because North Carolina is technically, I suppose, a swing state. Um, both candidates have been yes. spending time there. 
How important will the issue of the Second Amendment be in the minds of voters there in, in your home city? It's a, it's a huge issue both ways. The people who uh, abhor guns and would be shocked if we talked about young people learning how to shoot, uh, they are definitely uh, going to vote the Democratic Party. And the people that uh, want to keep their gun rights are going to drift to the Republican Party. There are other issues that could do it, but but the gun issue, in many cases, is the one issue that will make them vote and vote a certain way. The Democratic Party has not really brought a lot of gun control talk up in this election. Yeah, that that's very interesting. You know, none of us want people with uh, mental issues or criminal history or violent tempers, even careless people, to own firearms. That is bad for everybody, but. Right now, the things we have in place have done a pretty good job. Background checks and waiting periods have done a pretty good job. But unfortunately, the evil people and bad people are bad no matter what the laws are and have been able to get illegal firearms through even our best system, which has always been a worry, which is one reason that we've been promoting gun safes and special uh, boxes to lock in their cars so they can't be stolen. And there's so many guns in the United States that it's it's a daunting task, but we made some headway. I, w- I just want to try and understand, because in this part of the world here in Europe, Larry, a lot of us see a clear correlation between the wide availability of guns in America and the large number of gun deaths and mass shootings. Is that fair, or do you think we're looking at it in the wrong way? Well, I think it is fair in some ways. However, uh, if you look at misuse of firearms, the vast majority is in the ghettos and the low socioeconomic areas where you have drugs and gangs. This is where huge numbers of misuse. If you go to the suburbs, if you go to the rural areas, uh, tremendous drop-off in misuse of gun crime. It's uh, night and day. And I think it just says a lot about our country is our, our big cities are where the vast majority of problems are. It's not uh, always the ghetto. It's a real though, issue. Because it, a yeah. lot of the mass shootings have taken place on suburban school campuses, university campuses. Yeah. I'm thinking of Virginia Tech, that terrible tragedy. So it's not always the case. You're absolutely right. That's there's That type of crime where someone doesn't care if they're die when it happens, when there may be some mental issues, where there is so hard to stop that type of crime. And even if we banned the guns, there's so many out, we don't know if they could still keep someone like that from obtaining one. So it's a real, it's a real trade-off. Do we trade off our gun rights for security? And then we may not even get the security. So it's, it's a tough call. Larry, thank you so much for speaking with us and offering us your insight. Larry Hyatt is the owner of Hyatt Guns in Charlotte in North Carolina. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Simon. Welcome back to Race to the White House with me, Simon Tierney, here on News Talk. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at News Talk FM or indeed at Tierney Simon. But first, let's break into the White House. Thank you for calling the White House. 
Yes, indeed. Newstalk's Shane Hannan joins us once again for his weekly slot on the show. Thank you for calling the White House, taking us inside one of the most iconic buildings in the United States. Shane, um, this week we're looking at security. I've often wondered, obviously security is the job of the Secret Service, a very famous federal organisation, but they're not so secret, are they? No, and and I guess people people look at the Secret Service and they see them on the beat with their with their dark sunglasses and the black suits and uh, the earpiece. They look like something out of Men in Black. So it's it's fair to say they're not exactly secret. But uh, the name actually Simon is a holdover from the Civil War days. So their sole purpose back then was tracking down counterfeiters, which was a dangerous task during wartime. So counterfeiting was was fairly rampant at that point, and undercover work was used to uh, stamp out these counterfeiters, and hence the name Secret Service. So that's where the name came from. But as you said, they're they're not exactly secret in their uh, in their methods nowadays, but they are one of America's oldest federal investigative agencies, founded in 1865, which I found surprising. So they've been around a while, um, but approximately 3,200 special agents and then an additional 1,300 uniformed officers who guard the White House, the Treasury Building uh, and foreign diplomatic missions in Washington. So they're a busy folk. So they're much older than, say, other federal organizations like the CIA or the FBI, for instance. Exactly. And and like the fact that they've been around so long, they have a, a special place in American history, but uh, they, they've been busy, to say the least. And, and like they, they, there's different examples of uh, through, through history. We I, One of the things that I mentioned um, to you before we got on air was uh, back in 1901. So William C. McKinley, of course, was the president back then and one of the presidents, unfortunately, who was assassinated. But uh, he was shot and critically wounded during a reception uh, that took place in Buffalo, New York. Uh, he died eight days later and then Teddy Roosevelt sworn into office uh, as president. But before that, the Secret Service were actually just a part time organization. And then because of that, because of the seriousness of what happened, that prompted Congress then to request full time Secret Service protection for presidents. So it's interesting that it actually took an assassination for them to go full time uh, when you think that Lincoln, you know, 40 odd years earlier had been assassinated himself. So it, it took the assassination of William C. McKinley in 1901. Uh, to finally make the Secret Service go full-time. Since that time then, since McKinley, um, William McKinley, the Secret Service offer a, this bodyguard uh, service for for the president. And they, like when you see uh, President Trump or President Obama or Clinton or whoever it was going around, they constantly have eyes on them, don't they? Exactly. Like there's always people hiding in the background and you see photographs of, of big state events and big uh, speeches from presidents or even presidential candidates. And they're always there in the background. Now, uh, courts have kind of given the, the Secret Service much wider latitude than other law enforcement agencies in use of deadly force as well. They, of course, carry weapons. Um, and in reading up as well, they have these Belgian Malinois dogs, which are quite terrifying. If you look up Google images of Belgian Malinois dogs, they're quite uh, similar to German shepherds, but they're cross-trained to sniff out exlo- explosives and to attract, attack an intruder and take him or her down. So uh, if you do breach the White House and, and you get in the um, you get in the crosshairs of the Secret Service, then you really are in for, for some trouble because uh, they are kept quite busy. I'm curious because the Secret Service are depicted so often in American action movies from, you know, White House down to Olympus Has Fallen or one of my personal favourites, Clint Eastwood movie from the early 90s, In the Line of Fire, where he plays (laughs) a Secret Service agent and personal bodyguard to the president. But in those movies, one of the big themes is that a Secret Service agent assigned to the personal security detail of the president has to be willing to take a bullet 
to to save the life of the commander in chief. Is that based in yeah. any sort of fact? I mean, it, it's a strange one. It, the, the, I guess the motto of the Secret Service and the way they conduct themselves is that they are all willing uh, to do that and to take a bullet for the president. In fact, when, when Ronald Reagan was shot in the mid-80s, um, we, of course, know one of his, his aides took a bullet and was paralyzed for the rest of his life. But uh, a Secret Service agent was injured in that attack as well. Um, and I guess when you're one of those Secret Service agents that is in such close proximity to the president, it's it's inevitable that you know, you're there to protect the president first and foremost. So I guess that comes with the territory of being a Secret Service agent. And uh, one of the interesting things as well, Simon, is that I have kind of researched, you, you, you put, because of the fact that they put their lives on the line for the US president, you put them on this pedestal as kind of a above human type person. These are kind of almost robotic in the way they conduct themselves. But there have been loads of incidents over the years. There was a Time Magazine um, article I've been reading that kind of quoted saying there was a culture that condones laxness and cutting corners in the Secret Service at times. Uh, even when it came to the likes of firearms, requalification and physical fitness, they would either not allow the agents time to fulfill those requirements or ask them to fill out their own test scores. So there have been loads of incidents, even under the Obama administration, uh, incidents of of drunkenness among Secret Service agents on a, on a trip to uh, Colombia. So they may be uh, willing to put their lives on the line for the US president, but they're not perfect either, I guess, Simon. They're like a bit of crack at the same time. <laughs> okay, tell me this. In terms of breaching the White House perimeter, because the White House, I was surprised, is um, 18 acres. I mean, mm. in the centre of a big city like Washington, D.C., that's an incredibly large property. But um, it does have... Uh, a pretty fortress-like perimeter nowadays because there's been so many breaches over the years, haven't there? Exactly. So, I mean, the White House Historical Society said that Thomas Jefferson was actually the first president to put a fence around the White House. And over the years, that's clearly developed into the fence that there, is there today. Uh, Trump, you know, starting this eight-phase replacement with an approximately 13-foot tall fence, which began in July of last year. So it, they're kind of reactionary with this fence because... Uh, after things like the Oklahoma City bombings, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue was closed to traffic. Then after September 11th, a pedestrian traffic ban too, though it was allowed again a few years later. But um, you mentioned the intrusions and that that, that has happened uh, quite commonly. There was a, a 2015 report from the House of Representatives, uh, data from the Secret Service that said there were 104 security breaches or attempted breaches uh, between April 2005 and April 2015. So in that 10 year period. So reasonably common. And some of them, Simon, are absolutely ridiculous because there are some repeat offenders in there, people who, who almost are career breachers, so that three or four times they've tried to breach the White House fence, almost for sport. Uh, but then there are people who are, I guess, a little bit deranged and doing it for their own reasons. One guy climbing the fence because he wanted to tell the president about communism being rampant in his home state of North Carolina. Uh, you had other people, a guy who uh, stole a helicopter from Fort Meade in Maryland. He hovered over the Washington Monument on the White House in 1974, he was upset about flunking out of flight school. Uh, in 1978, a guy wanted to get, get to President Jimmy Carter to tell him to remove the phrase, in God we trust, from US currency. So he, he scaled the White House fence wearing a karate uniform, carrying a Bible with a knife hidden inside. So he had uh, some dangerous intentions. And then we had the incident quite recently, quite recently well, nine years ago, but uh, November 2011, a gunman fired an assault rifle at the White House. So it hit the residential wing at least seven times. And uh, there was quite a bit of controversy about it because the Secret Service didn't really spot the danger. They thought it was a, a gang-related shootout nearby. But then four days later, a housekeeper spotted bullets in the residence. So uh, the gunman eventually arrested at a hotel in Pennsylvania and in 2014 sentenced to 25 years in prison. So 
there have been a number of dangerous incidents, as you mentioned, of breaches at the White House as well. Finally, tell me about the bunker. Now, we did mention <laughs> this, I think, in the first episode of, of this show, Race to the White House. The bunker, again, is something that is depicted heavily in Hollywood movies. Does it exist? Well, it, we know it exists because <laughs> Trump admitted that he went there not too long ago. Now, he said he was going there for to give it an inspection, which sounded rather suspect <laughs> to me. But what sort of details do we know about the White House bunker? Yes, yeah, so this bunker, it's known as the Presidential Emergency Operations Centre. Of course, the Yanks would give it a long, a long-winded name unnecessarily, but uh, built for protection during World War II by Franklin D. Roosevelt, um, not by him personally, but by his staff. Um, of course, back then it would have need, been needed uh, during a, a world war. Uh, most notably, I guess, used during the 9-11 attacks, you had those famous images of Laura Bush down there. George W., of course, was in Florida at the time. And there are photos from the U.S. National Archives that show other important people down there with her. You have you had the Vice President, Dick Cheney, you had the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, and Condoleezza Rice, of course, who was the National Security Advisor. So uh, built in the 1940s, and it, it was an absolute necessity at the time. Um, but it has been used. You mentioned Trump. He reportedly, the incident that you mentioned, he spent an hour in the bunker uh, as those early Black Lives Matter protests grew quite intense in uh, in Washington, D.C. And yeah, he, he did say he was down there for an inspection, but uh, quite ridiculous. But uh, the First Lady Melania and uh, his son Barron were also taken down there. But the interesting one for me, Simon, is this new bunker. So these plans emerged in 2010 for an even better, even bigger uh, bunker. Um, so it's it's staffed every 12 or 24 hours. It's it's understood to exist. We don't know much about it, but it's uh, it's quite a mystery. Um, it's as the one of one person has been quoted as saying, the highest yield nuclear warhead in the U.S. arsenal can blast up to 1,000 feet deep. So this new presidential bunker must be at least that far below the surface, which is quite extraordinary. Five stories underground, a self-contained air supply, and sealed off to prevent radiation from seeping in during a nuclear attack. So these bunkers do exist. They are almost the stuff of science fiction in our heads, but uh, the stuff we know about them isn't quite uh, isn't quite that detailed. But we like to make up our own details about these things because, as you mentioned, the movies earlier on, they're all depicted, these bunkers in those. Uh, and, of course, the famous photo of Hillary Clinton when uh, uh, Osama bin Laden's assassination or uh, uh, that Navy SEAL um, attack was going on in Abbottabad in Pakistan. Uh, that was all down there as well. So they're quite dark, quite grim, quite grey, but they do exist and they serve a purpose. News Talk's Shane Hannan, thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Thank You for Calling the White House. That's us for this week. Do subscribe to the podcast on the News Talk app, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to producer Claire Collins. Join us next week as we continue our countdown of the Race to the White House. 